Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. Hello, Jade. Hello, Sophie and everybody listening. How are we this week? We're good this week. How are you? Oh, you've caught me on a morning. (laughs) Go on. Tell us what's going on. Oh, it's nothing new. I'm a fucking broken record. I'm just in a mood today. I'm sick of myself. I feel like you've been really good. Have I? Have I? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's... I'm normally such a positive person. I feel like this pregnancy I've had to put conscious effort into being positive and I think it's been exhausting me. But anyway, for those who may be new listeners around here, I'm about 27 weeks pregnant. It just feels like it's been going on for a really long time. I see people and they're like, oh, my God, that's flown. I'm like, has it? Has it really? (laughs) It's really dragging on. I've reached the stage where everyone goes, ooh, how long left now? Rather than the how many weeks are you? Assuming that you're close to due. And I see their faces change as I say, oh, no, I've still got like, Three months to go, like not till the end of Jan. And they're like, oh, and I'm just, I don't know. I've just reached a stage of fed up. I feel premenstrual even though obviously I'm not. I'm just pregnant. Hormonal. Can we blame like a growth spurt of the baby or something? Developmental. Can we start saying developmental before the baby's even born? Anyway, I've reached the stage where like I don't want to be all negative because I'm actually so so excited to have this baby. Like I am incredibly clucky. I am so, so excited. I feel like I've really wrapped my head around the fact that I'm pregnant with a baby. Yeah. And I'm going to have a baby. <laughs> but, oh, God, the pregnancy. I just I just can't get on the pregnancy bandwagon no matter how hard I try. Do you think we should do a post on social media and get people to let us know the worst things that people say in the second and third trimester oh. and see what comes out? It's just it, that's the thing that gets to me everywhere I go like you know if I go somewhere where I just know like you know there's acquaintances there I feel like I have to gear up and prep for like what are they going to say? And it's like all social norms just go out the window. Like we're not in the 90s anymore. We're in 2022. Oh, fashion thinks we are. People, yeah, the low-rise jeans. Yeah. <laughs> not no, coming back. Not coming back. Don't you dare. But, you know, I feel like we've got to the stage where people have stopped just blatantly commenting about women's bodies to them. And every single part of that just goes out the door when you are pregnant. And I'm so, this is the first pregnancy that I've been really self-conscious by that. I feel like I enter into every conversation going, what are they going to say? What are they going to say? Do I have it in me to hear it? So, yeah, that's where I'm at currently. So if you see me, can you just not comment on the way I look? Just shut up. (laughs) Just say, hi, how's your day? Anyway, how are you? (laughs) (laughs) You're kind of nearly there. Ish. I think also this is my third summer baby and I've been like, oh, my God, it's so fun. It's so what I'm used to. You just swim all the time, la da 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 And then the last few days it's like properly got hot and felt like summer and I'm a little bit like, oh, shit, yeah. I for- It's like when your contractions start for the first time again and you go, oh, yeah, maybe I was downplaying this. But it's like this. what you were saying. It's- it was like you were saying before because – Oh, Juno's having a little puppy mare. It's like you were saying before, you have two children now as well as being pregnant and you were talking about space and how irritated you were getting over the weekend and that in itself is such an extra element because you've got, you're already sweaty, you're already pregnant and then you've got two little ones that are like, mom, mom, mom. And, and they're fighting over my lap and there's not a lot of room left over my lap. And, you know, Goldie's going, but I want to wrap both my legs around you and then she does that and then Poppy tries to sit on the other knee and Goldie's wind 
cringing because she's squashing her leg, and I'm like, just get off me! You just need a donkey kick Someone off. stop touching Into me! The pool. So yeah, come on. Can you bring the positive vibes? Yes, I can. Tell me how wonderful life with three is going to be. Yes, it's fabulous. At the moment, my husband is away. He's doing some sort of hiking trek uh, in Tasmania. It's minus one. He sends me photos with little high kids in the snow and he's freezing and I'm here in the sun swimming with the girls in the pool and I don't know what it is, but he's been away for almost four nights and it has been a really good weekend. I've been able to parent successfully. Yes, they're annoying sometimes, but I have filled up my cup with the girls. We literally, I woke up on Saturday and I was like, oh, why do I feel irritated? And I kind of automatically got my phone out and I was like, I just don't want to be on this thing today. So I popped it away and I spent the whole entire day being present with my children, not giving anyone else anything. And i got to tell you, it was an absolute game changer to just sit and be present the entire day. And the next day I woke up feeling really good again, but I had a little bit of it in me to share updates from the day before. And it was just sort of nice to know that I don't have to constantly do things. I can just pick parts of time, save things for later. And it's me making boundaries for myself to know when is enough and when is time to actually slow down and, you know, go outside, smell the fresh air, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) So it's, yeah, it's been a really good weekend and I don't know if I need my husband anymore. So (laughs) I'll let him know when he gets back. Oh yeah. That sounds like that conversation is going to go great. Speaking of, have loved the feedback from the couples therapy episode. Bloody brilliant. (laughs) Which if you come back and say that straight away, I do think the two of you will need therapy, but, um, Yeah, it's been so incredible. How many people have said, wow, I never even considered therapy because I didn't feel like we were, you know, about to break up or anything, but they're like, oh, wow, maybe it's something that can strengthen a relationship even when it's not at breaking point. Yeah, so I love that, you know, lots of people had never spoken about it, heard about it, heard it be spoken about before, so yeah. Yes. Now, do we have a Rudal Fabulous? Yes, we've had lots sent in, but I'm going to read out one that got sent in by beautiful Alex. She says, Rudal Fabulous, you're running late and trying to get ready and your breastfed baby is crying and needing a feed, but you figure I'll just quickly finish drying my hair. Then you realise the hairdryer is the best damn white noise machine (laughs) and the baby just falls straight to sleep. So you call your appointment to tell them you're running late so you can finish your coffee in peace mind you with the hairdryer still going propped up against the bouncer in the bathroom caffeinated and great hair what a win first of all I'm so impressed that you have a baby and you're still blow drying your hair (laughs) I don't think I've blow dried my hair for a solid five and a half years second fabulous absolutely fabulous and I used to do this with Mia and it was so cold in Melbourne that I could just have it on as a heater and it was it was a white noise machine I mean my husband wasn't impressed that I was wasting electricity but I wasn't impressed to keep a child quiet for at least 30 minutes it was great absolutely now any mum hacks that's kind of a mum hack it is we've got another mum hack it's from Olivia hi girls I have a mum hack for you that I've been doing for a while if people want their kids to entertain themselves for a while yes we do I got so tired of the fights over bubble wands and mixtures spilling all the time with my three-year-old and 20-month-old so now when we do bubbles, I tape the bubble containers, one each obviously, to a downpipe or leg of an outdoor table outside, whatever works, and they can happily bubble up their wands without spilling and without fighting over who is holding what bubble mixture container. It lets me have time for some bubbles of my own, oh, girlfriend, and to listen to another BTB podcast episode. Oh, my God, Olivia, this is a bloody... (laughs) It's a trifecta. You've just nailed it. You've just nailed all of it. I have seen pictures of these people zip tying them to, like, uh, just any structure outside. And I do Dad think leg. you always <laughs> sucker. You do think you need a big zip tie. Uh, which like <laughs> That's um, what she said. Um, I've gone off track. Anyway, <laughs> I do think that bubbles are great, but they always end up being an 
absolute occupational health and safety risk because once that shit spills on the ground, it is like an ice rink. No, it's an ice rink out there. And then so you go from thinking you're buying yourself some time to all of a sudden your kids just slipping over and yeah, banging their heads on the ground. So So, do all um, the grass. And tie up your kids. (laughs) (laughs) Can you let me finish a fucking sentence? Now you know how it feels. All right, we're going to get into today's episode. We spoke to the incredible Dr. Oscar Serilac. He is basically an expert now on postnatal depletion. He is a functional GP and sees lots of women in his clinic about how they can better prepare themselves for the postnatal period to hopefully avoid suffering from postnatal depletion. We absolutely loved this chat. It made me so excited about my own postnatal experience this time and implementing some of the tips and tricks and mindsets. So yeah. And I learned so much about the other cultures, how they nurture their mothers postpartum, treating them like absolute queens, exactly what we should be doing here. And we asked Oscar the hard questions like, what he really thinks of the postpartum lasagna for a meal. (laughs) So we hope you enjoy and see you later. Hello, Oscar. Thank you so much for joining us on Beyond the Bump today. We are super excited to chat to you today about all things postnatal depletion and the fourth trimester. Before we get started, are you able to tell us a little bit about yourself and what kind of got you into this work? Thanks, Sophie. Thanks, Jade. Yeah. Pleasure to be on the podcast. Uh, Thanks for the invitation. And yeah, like a lot of us, I didn't come to this world of uh, postpartum, postnatal out of curiosity. I came to it uh, out of a place of necessity. And having started a family, I've, I've got three kids. My kids are a little bit older now, but really experiencing a lot of struggle that my partner was having and a lot of struggle that I was seeing in the mothers around me and I was working in a small country town and so I got to see everything you know I was running the hospital I was running the emergency department so I was just very aware of the struggles that mothers were sort of going through and I was doing my functional medical training at the same time as working out uh, remotely and I just noticed that there was a real pattern that I was seeing with a lot of my mothers about they weren't just tired they had certain types of fatigue you know, they weren't just having problems with concentration or very specific, exaggerated issues about each of these things that I was sort of seeing. And I presume that there would be a ton of textbooks and medical articles to, to look at. And to my shock and horror, there was basically nothing. There was so little research on the postpartum that initially I thought I had the wrong search terms, looking in the wrong <laughs> journal, looking in the wrong language. Your Google maybe. wasn't working. <laughs> and I really didn't come up with much. And I, I have to be honest, I was initially a bit annoyed because I kept on coming up with these postpartum practices from traditional cultures. And I was like, no, 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 I want the medical stuff. And eventually I kind of started to go, okay, look, what, what have these cultures got to say? Maybe they've got some insight. And yeah, it was quite incredible how these cultures that have nothing to do with each other are talking about the same thing. And then they're talking about a solution being very similar. And so what they're talking about is that mothers have a potential to struggle. Mothers have a potential to go into a quite a unique landscape of dysfunction. And to prevent that from happening, you need to confine the mother, you need to give her special foods, you need to change her role in that society for um, a defined period. And then once you're through that six, 12 months typically, then she's okay to go back to being her much more her previous self. So this blows my mind because how long ago were you doing this research? Not that long ago. So my my firstborn was born in 2006 and so probably the year after that, 2007, 2008. So, you know, that's not that long ago. And, no. and you struggled to find any resources or information about depletion and what women were going through. That's, like, extraordinary. Yeah, and especially since my book came out in 2018, there's been a lot more research that's come out, but it's a really, really under-researched area. I mean, there are less than 100 papers worldwide specifically looking at the human maternal brain. 
Well, I think it's because it's just become an expectation. It's just become a, you know, anytime you yawn when you're pregnant, someone turns around to you and says, oh, you think you're tired now, just you wait. Or, you know, you're traveling somewhere and you complain about a flight. Oh, you think it's hard now, wait till you have kids. It's almost this, you know, obviously we have to go into parenthood with a realistic expectation, but we also don't need to go in just expecting that we're going to suffer through day in, day out. And I think that's where people find it so hard, correct me if I'm wrong, to know the difference between what is normal postnatal fatigue and, and, and you know, change of identity and, and, and change of livelihood versus what is postnatal depletion. Well, yeah, and, and do we actually know what is normal? Yeah. Is, is I think, probably mm. the first question. Uh, I've just done a deep dive into maternal sleep recently and all the research about mothers sleeping in the first year is basically getting them to self-report onto paper about how things they went. <laughs> they're, oh, yeah. they're not a very um, reliable source. <laughs> well, but, but, but they know that people aren't very good regardless about reporting on sleep and, mm. and, and that's then set as the baseline. And is that a 21st century baseline? Mm. Is that a, a Northern Hemisphere baseline? Is and, and how what does culture and you know population density and other kind of things that you know, if you're living in the middle of a big city or out in the country, do they they don't even know? And so what I think we've done in our societies, we've normalized what is common. And there's a real risk with doing that. If we were to do that, just for example. 50% of people in Australia who are 50 years of age or older, so half the population once you hit 50 or above, have diabetes. Half wow. of them don't know about it, so they're pre-diagnosis, but 50%. So could you say diabetes is normal? No, you can't mm. say that, but it's so common. And I think we risk of mixing those two together. And, and I really struggle to know what is normal within the postpartum period. Uh, because there aren't reference ranges, there aren't really good large-scale studies looking at mothers who are doing well versus mothers who aren't doing well. And then we have to go back to looking at a lot of traditional cultures to kind of go, well, maybe that's a little bit closer to the normal versus what we're experiencing in the 21st century. So essentially we're rewriting the book. Well, it's a big social experiment, yes. And is it going well? Uh, I don't think so. The, The amount of struggle, despair... Uh, I think unnecessary overwhelm and fatigue that mothers are experiencing. When you look at traditional societies, they don't really describe maternal struggles in the same way that we do. They're definitely aware of the potential, but because they have these uh, superstitions and legends and practices, they don't tend to see many mothers with true fatigue or who end up getting depression, anxiety. Uh, I think traditional cultures may have a rate of one in a hundred of of mothers getting depression. In Australia, next year, it's going to be closer to one in three mothers who are going to be getting depression or anxiety. So how can we distinguish normal postnatal fatigue, in quotations normal, versus postnatal depletion? How can we work out what the difference is? Well, let's talk about what depletion is and then what maybe fatigue is. So almost all the disorders of the postpartum, and this includes severe fatigue, anxiety, depression, depletion, OCD, so obsessive compulsive disorder, are related to different ratios of neurosteroids, so hormones in the brain that get out of balance. And they're very unique for mothers in terms of what happens because these things don't seem to happen in men or women who haven't had children. And they're called neuroinflammatory when these brain hormones get out of balance. And they can have a few different uh, flavors in terms of anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive uh, thinking. And, and so I came up with the term depletion to describe all the light, mild to moderate imbalances that didn't quite tick the boxes for anxiety or depression or OCD. But I had so many mothers saying to me, look, I feel depressed at times, but I'm not depressed. I get anxious, but I don't have anxiety. 
but these mothers would also have significant cognitive dysfunction and they'd have fatigue that wasn't alleviated by one or two nights good sleep and so coming back to your to your question well what is now what is the difference between fatigue and depletion well let's just talk about fatigue generally if yeah. it's not because of anemia or severe iron deficiency or a thyroid problem where there's a medical issue why the mother's fatigue she should be able to feel better after a few nights good sleep that would be mm. i think within the normal realm of yeah, that's that's just you're just feeling tired in in, in the postnatal. Whereas depletion is okay. It's, you're not you don't get that from a few nights good sleep, and then you don't quite tick the boxes for de depression or anxiety. And, and they've got quite narrow definitions for those two disorders. But you've got a lot of the symptoms. You've got the fatigue. You've got cognitive dysfunction. So in terms of memory, working memory, difficulty kind of doing mathematical type. Uh, executive function, uh, becoming hypervigilant. Hypervigilance are really interesting. It's meant to be a symptom of good, and it's also a symptom of mm. struggle. And so it's just where is a mother on the hypervigilance really sort of helps me decide, is she doing okay or is she really sort of struggling? Because a mother's brain is hardwired during pregnancy to be hypervigilant, to sleep with one eye open. We wouldn't be here as a species mm. if we all slept like like fathers or <laughs> we'd, we'd wake uh, up thank in the you morning, for raising that yeah we would wake up in the morning and go where was that cute thing that we had yesterday um <laughs> you know like this been something's taken it and what people don't realize is humans are very unique on a lot of different levels but especially when it comes to the postpartum so human babies are born helpless at nine months they're almost born premature and there's a term called exogestation, which is the baby growing outside the womb to get the baby to 22 months. If you can imagine, you know, the pregnancy being 22 months, that's when other mammals would be birthing their children at a similar developmental stage. Huh. But we can't do 22 months pregnancy so we thank have goodness <laughs> i'm pregnant right now and 20, 26 weeks has felt like 105 weeks so if you told me i had to do this for 22 months there's no way yeah well you put, but we would we would see a lot lower birth rate i'm sure but but the idea is like <laughs> we've got this big gap of going okay well we've got this helpless baby for 13 months and so the placenta has to recruit extra things from a mother's brain to get her interested in the baby, including things like hypervigilance and caring more about this liability, um, the cute baby, than about herself. <laughs> so would you say it's almost like, is it a spectrum? Like if you've got postnatal depletion, are you on your way to postnatal anxiety, depression or OCD? Or is it something quite separate? Uh, it is on a spectrum, but I think the dice can be loaded. So some mothers are much more prone to depression. And the factors that increase your rate of depletion also increase your rate of depression and anxiety. And they have to do with low nutrient status. They have to do with a low socioeconomic status as well and no support. They're, they're the three. They did a, a research paper in America recently where they thought the strongest indicator of whether you would get postpartum depression was access to diapers, so nappies. If you didn't have access to, to nappies, you had to drive a lot further, they cost a lot more for your budget, your risk of depression was very much correlated with. And so that's like, okay, that shows the stress, the overwhelm, the, the feeling of isolation and potentially abandonment that can really contribute to that so i think it would depletion on that spectrum would potentially increase your risk of going into depression and anxiety but i think once the dice are rolled in those first couple of months you, you your trajectory is already set is it going to be mild moderate or severe and then you're just you know, it's just whether you fall over on the slippery ice or not in terms of where you're heading because a lot a lot of those biochemical things have already started in pregnancy they, they've done very good research showing inflammation in pregnancy dictates how likely you'll get depression and inflammation in pregnancy is dictated by 
all those things that we talked about, support, nutrient status, overwhelm, lack of sleep, lack of safety. That seems to be another one that we're seeing more as a risk factor. And and safety, how do you measure safety? It's like you can't. That's, that's a feeling that a mother has or she doesn't have. So you're saying prevention comes from, if you can, mm. putting in place things before you're even pregnant. Because I think a lot of us get into pregnancy and then go, oh, what support systems can we set up for when the baby arrives? But actually, if we have the ability, these thoughts or, or, or these things could be starting before we've even conceived the child? Ideally, but most women in the 21st century know that they are pregnant because their period is late. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, you're looking at it. <laughs> Guilty. I'm sorry to say, forty percent of children are conceived under the influence of some sort of drugs, usually alcohol. So, again, the reason why I'm bringing that up is that it's often not intentional. So the preconception stuff would be ideal, but yeah, luckily Mother Nature and the placenta and the baby are very forgiving. So. Uh, even if you've had a pr- bit of a wild time in conceiving, uh, you can always uh, improve things. But you, you just do need to give in- appropriate attention and care uh, once you sort of find out that you're pregnant. But so if you actually went through something quite traumatic through your pregnancy, that could have a significant impact on your fourth trimester. Huge. Okay. And I- I've heard so many stories about death in the family, having to move house. We've, took, you know, we've got the pandemic and floods and they know from research in war zones and, and areas of famine, it, it's, it's, it has a massive impact, not only on the mother and the pregnancy, but her offspring and then how that offspring is up to two generations later in terms of epigenetic effects. And so when we're talking about pregnancy, this is not an academic uh, we'll just see how it goes type exercise. We're actually really setting up the, the trajectory of the next generation. And this is why I think there needs to be so much care, research, support. I mean, yes, Australia has moved to 26 weeks of maternity care, but it's not happening straight away. It's going to take a few years. And is that even enough? And if you have a look at overseas countries, you know, we're still way behind the average at 26 weeks. And that's only just one factor of many that we could be looking at. So what do you think are things that either as a society we can put in place or as an individual or couple or family having a baby that can actually make a significant difference on this postpartum period? So if we haven't got the individual, the first part for me is always about enrolment. So are we truly enrolled in becoming parents? 99% of the time, I don't think we are. We sort of have an abstract idea of what being a parent is and looking after kids. And and the average postpartum plan, certainly in Australia, from what I've seen, is we're going to wing it. We we research the the pregnancy and the birth, and we kind of know what kind of pram we're going to have and car seats, and that's probably the end of it. And I, I tell people, look, the birth is not the finish line. It's the starting line of motherhood. And the pregnancy is like a fancy, elaborate warm-up, if you like. Now, very important. No, I don't think we should be taking you know, attention away from pregnancy at all, but it needs to be in a, in a bigger context of the transformation into motherhood. And I think where we can really gather around individually and as a culture is around the concept of matrescence, which I think is a very powerful, untainted word, it really talks to the transformation from maiden, a woman who doesn't have children, to a mother. And it rhymes with adolescence because it's meant to, because adolescence talks about becoming an adult. And if you have a look at the research, 120 years ago, no one believed in adolescence. It was laughed at. They had to introduce it into legislation. And the first time it was used in English as a, as a word, it comes from French, it was in, I don't know, 1904, 1905. By a psychologist, you know, they laughed at him. But these 12-year-olds going into the workplace, which wasn't the farm anymore, it was a factory, things weren't going so well. And so they had to really bring in legislation. And for 20 years, it was kind of joked about not taken seriously. And now we're there as a ton of research showing that adolescents are in a unique transformative phase. 
And there are many parallels with adolescence and matrescence, brain changes, hormonal changes, but there are way more brain changes and, and hormonal changes in a single pregnancy than for your entire adolescence. And we only go through adolescence once, thank goodness. A mother goes through matrescence with each pregnancy. Yeah. And so that sometimes the wobble can be a lot more in one of those pregnancies uh, in terms of the challenges and the struggles. And then, and it takes a mother a couple of years to get used to her matrescent brain. It takes an adolescent Mm. a couple of years to get used to their adolescent brain. And what I tell people is that the cultural norms and the kind of societal talk should be very much how we talk about adolescence. If we see an adolescent struggling, we don't go, oh, they're a pretty crap adult. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Things, Sometimes you know. we do. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but we but this whole shame and you're not good enough and you should know better and why would you need help dialogue that we have around mothers. Would we say that to adolescents who are kind of really struggling? No. We, we, you'd- so what you're saying is we need to get the fourth trimester through legislation and then we can have everyone aware, focus more, and hopefully we could have, you know, more support in that area because a lot of people who listen to our podcast know that I suffered postnatal depression and I always say it's severe I had severe postnatal and worked out it's actually any postnatal depression severe that's just what it is yeah and I only recently and I'm going to ask you this to see if you agree I had a I was really deficient in iron and when I gave birth I gave birth to a big baby and a really big placenta and the next few hours went by I went to the toilet and fainted fell on the floor and they just said your blood pressure is extremely low and I needed a blood transfusion to get me back on top that I feel set me up to only crumble weeks if not months down the track and slowly bit by bit I ended up falling apart at the seams not understanding myself crying all the time being super down and looking at my child as if it wasn't my child I had no idea what was going on and it was only a few months down the track where my GP said I think you might have postnatal depression and anxiety so is there a connection between blood loss in birth Well, as horrible as your experience was, it really sums up exactly what can be going on for these postnatal neuroinflammatory issues. So passing out, it's nervous system mediated. So it was just the lack of blood that then caused the nervous system to drop your blood pressure. Right. The nervous system effects then to the brain pretty much told your brain you were under immediate danger And then that's what continues after that. So severe stress, I mean, a near-death experience. And so your autonomic nervous system, so your ancient kind of automatic nervous system would have just said, we're we're dying. And would have sent all those messages back to headquarters. And I did say that out loud too for anyone that was listening. I'm dying. (laughs) And 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 I, I I get that because your nervous system was perceiving that. And in an ideal world, that would have been, okay, we've had a, a, a severe trauma at the birth. We need to de-traumatize this mother's nervous system. And so she's going to need a different type of postpartum care. But we don't live in that sort of world. So you kind of, you, know, you either get your anemia, blood loss corrected, or you don't. You kind of stumble home. Your nervous system doesn't know everything's okay, even though your blood loss might have been corrected. Mm. and. When you look at the what the chronic stress response then causes, it it basically then cascades or dominoes to those hormonal brain changes that a mother experiences to get depression, anxiety. And I'm someone that has suffers from depression and anxiety on and off. I always have. But when I came home as a mother of three after having that happen at the hospital, I was extremely pale, and then as we were saying before, everyone sort of dotes on you in the pregnancy phase. As soon as you give birth, it's more focusing on the baby phase because they're cute. And mum's just left there trying to do all the jobs that she was doing before, 
yet she can't. And not understanding or not having someone say to you, you need extra care, you need extra support. Like if I had have known that, perhaps that journey wouldn't have been so dark. Oh, 100%. There's no traditional culture that would have allowed that to happen. And I've, I've collected practices from many different cultures. And a, a, a local example in Samoa, if a mother isn't made to feel like royalty in the first three months postpartum, those around her have failed. Wow. Now, I don't know what feeling like royalty would be like, but I imagine it will be pretty <laughs> nice. And you, and you wouldn't be having to do all those jobs. And 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 this is where the cultural lens, you know, when, when you're pregnant, yeah, there's like a spotlight on you. And then the spotlight, rather than staying on the mother, which it does in traditional societies, it kind of moves to the baby. And and this is the the joke about going from pregnant princess to postpartum pauper. <laughs> oh, my um, God, that is so accurate. Wow. <laughs> It's spot on. And it, it can hit mothers so intensely because emotionally you're in a very vulnerable state postpartum. Your hormones have gone from being very high during pregnancy to, to being very low. And especially in that first six to 12 weeks, the, those hormones are trying to come back online. And if you have shock, trauma, lack of support, severe sleep deprivation, a lot of these things are going to prevent those hormones coming back online. Mm. And then you are prone to having all these issues with brain hormones. Right. So how can we in this very, you know, our families are way more isolated, I assume, than, you know, the way that they would maybe live in Samoa or something like that. How can we in our very isolated homes with our fast-paced lives and, you know, work being the priority for so many people, how can we introduce some of these more traditional practices in a realistic way so that we can remain the princess (laughs) rather than going back (laughs) to the forgotten? Yeah. Well, I think the term matrescence is a great starting point, but it's talking about it and then postpartum planning. I do a lot of postpartum planning in my clinic. I always try to get the father or primary caretaker, you know, the non-placental parent essentially in just to help with education and also going, okay, this is what you're up for in the next while. And these are the things we're trying to avoid. And then to invest time, effort and money into the postpartum. Now, if you've got an adolescent who's struggling and he needs to learn some adult, you're going to pay for some driving lessons. You're going to, if they need to see a psychologist, you know, you would usually not say no, knowing that once they're good, they're good ongoing. And mothers are similar. Once they're good from their postpartum recovery, they're good. They're not going to fall over uh, very easily. But if if they don't get to that stage of being good, then they can fall down very easily. Yeah, so if we educate our loved ones and had, you know, materials and advice, imagine if that was actually an extra class that were was given out by the government here. It's actually for the carer of the the pregnant woman. You sit down over the next few weeks and you get educated about how they can help you in the fourth trimester. How do we care for them? How do we feed them well? How do we make sure that they're emotionally well? physically well and what can we do to bloody music to my ears honestly i've got goosebumps how amazing that would be and the support just hearing that would help so many women after birth well and not only the woman but the family and yeah the the father or other primary sort of caregiver so for for fathers as research is done on fathers is a 10 percent rate of depression in fathers in the postpartum and unlike any other depression that they've ever studied, there's only one risk factor. And it's not whether you've had depression before or you've got a drug history. No, no, none of that. It's whether the mother has depression. Wow. Oh, wow. And, and so if he's out of his depth, he's going to fall apart as well. And, and so this is where the dominoes can really just start crashing down in, in these families. And so this is where postpartum planning and I often have couples come into my clinic at 28 weeks gestation to do the postpartum planning uh sessions and I ask them do you have a good 
birth plan and they're like yes yes we've got a good birth plan so okay great we can screw that up put her over there this, ba- <laughs> this baby's going to be born whether you like it or not and i'm just you know trying to be lighthearted about the fact that yeah yeah we need to then start thinking about postpartum and so i i i, I walk through the three main principles a whole lot of ideas the three main toxins to avoid and then give them lots of worksheets to work out with their partner and they're in a circle about what does this even look like. And I've had so much good feedback about how that helped resource the partner and take pressure off the mother to allow her to stay in the baby bubble. I think I love you. <laughs> but if we don't know, we don't know. And I'm, I'm guilty as accused for sure of just going, I call it Pinterest parenting. It's just this idea of going, okay, I'm going to take this idea and, and put in this idea about co-sleeping and thumb sucking. No, we're not going to do thumb, you know, and just all ridiculous. No, not out of any world of practicality or of but purely just thoughts. And it's very hard to tell you know, a couple to be about the reality of things, but they shouldn't be going in blind. And one of the things I, I say is the average mother loses 700 hours of sleep in the first year. The average adult needs about 3,000 hours of sleep in the first year. And if the mother is the CEO of the house, which she is in many times, as a corporation, your CEO is going to lose 700 hours of sleep. You've got to adjust how that corporation is working. Otherwise, totally. you know, you're, you're heading for a cliff. Has it been looked into whether postpartum depletion is worse in those that are purely stay at home versus those who go back to work at a certain time? Or does that not seem to be a factor? Well, the factor is about stress and overwhelm. And so that can happen when you go back to work and that can happen when you Mm. stay at home alone. A hundred percent. And so my answer to that question is what is more stressful for the mother? Because that's the issue. And when you look at the stress response that mothers can experience, you can then understand why body hormones and brain hormones don't kind of recalibrate. And we all know if your hormones are not working properly, it's hard for the body just to self-correct, especially if you're doing the same thing or if you're not getting enough sleep, you're overwhelmed uh, and you're under-supported. So it's not about giving hormones if they're low. That's not, not a good idea most of the time anyway. It's about supporting the body to make its own hormones and to do the recalibration. Does your birth, like cesarean or vaginal, make any difference in postnatal depletion? You lose slightly less blood with the average cesarean. I think 500 mils for a cesarean, about 700 mils for a vaginal birth. There's a lot more oxytocin, obviously, with a vaginal birth, so that's a plus. Fatigue can be a lot worse with a prolonged labour. And I think it really comes down to has there been birth trauma? I mean, birthing, mm. whether by cesarean or vaginally, is traumatic. Mm. But whether that physical trauma equates to emotional trauma, and I think that's the big factor, because you can have quite a physically traumatic birth, either by cesarean or, vag- or vaginal, and you're fine. And you can have a moderately traumatic birth, and, and, and it can be very uh, impactful. Yeah, I've actually heard story of a lot of women who have been very happy with their birth and then by the time they leave the hospital, so many people have said to them, oh, my goodness, what a traumatic day you went through, da-da-da-da-da. And by the time they leave the hospital, suddenly they feel as though they have had a traumatic birth or maybe vice versa or they do feel like it was traumatic and all these people are saying, wow, what a straightforward, simple birth you had. But I guess it's the same as the returning to work thing versus staying at home. It's all how you feel about the experience. Yeah, and it's they call it the HPA axis. So that it's basically your brain talking to your adrenals, your adrenals talking to your brain. That's a major part of our stress response. And it's whether that is working well or not to how a mother's going to recover. And if she's got too much stress for her, it's a case by case, she is going to struggle. If she can't engage the stress off, the relaxation response, no, it's going to push you closer to the edge. So this is where mothers, you know, I mean, motherhood is stressful. I mean, there's no way around that. Anyone who tells me motherhood is not stressful, I'm like, okay, what 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 planet are you living on? <laughs> but there's joy 
uh, and there should be time to stress off that kind of the relaxation response. Just little chunks through the day, bigger chunks once in a while, very important. It shouldn't be 24-7 stress on, stress on, stress on that the body can't cope with. And so we have three maternal toxins. These are things that I've, again, this isn't researched, but three toxins that I've found in the first year postpartum that can undo mothers time and time again. One is sleep deprivation, and even that's not that well researched. Overwhelm. And overwhelm for mothers seems to be electrically in the brain quite different to other types of overwhelm that adults experience. And judgment. Judgment by self. Mothers can be their own worst mm. critic. And judgment by others. And so, and often by well-meaning others who in the hospital say something going, oh, you're looking pretty good after that shocking night or, or I'm just paraphrasing yeah. what you sort of said. And then that comes as a judgment of sorts. Um, I had a mother recently say that she was doing great. She had a cesarean, just day three, was totally in love with the baby. And the nurse came in and she said, oh, and she asked the nurse, can you please just help just change nappies with the baby? And the nurse just said, oh, do you think you're going to get this kind of help at home? Mm. And I'm sure the nurse was trying to be well-meaning and almost start to toughen the mom up, but she just she, she just hit a curtain came down, you know, dark curtain, and she just months later had still not recovered. Wow. And so I, I can understand what might have happened brain hormone-wise with that experience, but, again, this is very, very under-researched, and so the – they're just observations until we, we can get more science around this. But yeah, it's, and so again, part of the postpartum planning is these are the three maternal toxins. How are you going to reduce overwhelm? You can't stop it. How are you going to reduce the judgment? Um, and how are you going to you know, have a, a plan around sleep? But I'm saying these are three important things to be aware of. You need to decide as a couple, as a family, as a, a collective, how to manage that. The overwhelm is such an interesting one that you've brought up because it's something that I've noticed each time in the postpartum period and have have never really talked about it that much. But I don't know if it's a part of that, you know, how you said matrescence is similar to the stage of adolescence where the way I experience overwhelm in the postpartum phase is so different to anything I experienced pre-children or kind of once that immediate postpartum period is over. And I've always explained it like a bit of a toddler tantrum. I'll be out somewhere. I'll be completely fine. I'll be doing something and everything is manageable. And it's like the click of a finger, the flick of a switch. I go, I cannot be here anymore. I need to go. I'm about to lay down on the ground and punch and kick the ground and cry and be a bit irrational. And it was quite amazing. I remember the first time I experienced it with my first child and I was like, I've never in my adult days, remember feeling like this so suddenly. Yeah, and you're 100% right that the same things happen with toddlers and adolescents at these transitions. Yeah, yeah I call it you know, the grunting of the adolescent or the adolescent losing it. It's a similar thing that they, it's all neuroelectrical. And postpartum rage, it's under-talked about. It's a real thing. It may be part of depression, but lots of mothers without depression have you know, quite challenging postpartum range. We don't talk about it in Australia. I mean, overseas, they, it's talked about a lot more and, and supported, and, and, but I think we're you know, quite conservative in a lot of ways here in Australia, and it just doesn't sound great to, to mm. talk about your meltdowns and these postpartum ranges. Oh, I felt like smashing up the whole house, and I'm okay now, but... And, and, <laughs> But that's part of these brain changes, neurohormones that are just out of whack. So if we feel like we're depleted, is there some kind of test we can get that goes, yes, you have postnatal depletion, or is it more looking at a mother as a whole picture? Like what do we do if we're depleted? So depletion is more just things that I've observed, and I, a lot of that I got from looking at traditional cultures about what they described on the spectrum. And there's testing that I've seen that definitely correlates, but the testing is only really there to give permission to then give the supports or the supplements, or uh, there are certainly things that amplify it. 
So iron deficiency, thyroid dysfunction, lack of fish oil, so DHA deficiency, they're the three big ones. Then there are some secondary things like zinc, vitamin B9, so folate's quite important for brain function and depression, and reasonable research about those two things. And then a number of different secondary factors as well. But it's not, I don't see depletion as a single issue. It's a culmination of multiple things that are biological, that are social, that are cultural, and possibly even spiritual. We're talking about mother's purpose, her role, who am I? Recent research, this isn't published yet, out of uh, Holland, looking at during pregnancy, the default mode network, which is the part of the brain that is represents a bit of our daydreaming and who are we when we're not thinking about who we are. And when we re- reflexively see something and do something, so if you see someone falling over and you go to pick them up and you haven't thought about it, that's the default mode network that's doing all that. That's the part of the brain that possibly gets the biggest upgrade during pregnancy. And what does that mean? It totally changes who a mother thinks she might be. And that, that's at a subconscious level. At a conscious level, then the mother's trying to go, oh, I'm feeling really different about things. I'm back at work. Everything's different here. But hang on, work hasn't changed. It's exactly the same. I've changed. I feel different. And so no one's told me that I'd feel different. And that, that can be a very lonely time for mothers trying to negotiate this huge change of sense of self, of role, of the who am I, what is my purpose, these things that used to be really important to me, not that important to me anymore. I mean, you both would know how uh, how deep that can go and then how, you know, the, the struggle in terms of trying to sort those things out. So when you said that there was like if you are deficient in iron or you needed more fish oil, is there a specific blood test that we can ask for to make sure that, you know, any of this is happening? Yeah, so iron, if your ferritin is below 25 uh, micrograms per litre, you have iron deficiency that needs correction. Uh, Deficiency starts at 30. Anything below 25 um, is not okay in my books. And I can. Mine was three. So that makes a hell of a lot of sense. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's bordering on criminal to leave mothers. Oh, you're only slightly anemic. And they've got a ferritin of six or seven. It's like there is enough research to show that is not good for the mother. That is not good for the child. It affects their neurodevelopment. It affects the mother's recovery but it's not a disease. And so un- until it is, uh, the medical mm. world is always just looking to rule out diseases and iron deficiency is barely that. I just feel like the iron infusion when they offer it is left too late. Like if you're about to have, if you have a baby at 38 weeks and they're offering it to you at 35 weeks, well, it's not giving you a lot of time to, it, it takes about two weeks to get through your body. So I don't know. I feel like is there something that they could be looking at a little bit sooner to make sure that these women are actually, you know, full of iron, got what they need and can go in with birth as best as they can? Yeah, and that would mean taking more blood tests during pregnancy. Yeah, right, and money. Well, and and then the, the whole sort of cost shifting. But for me, it's, it, it's ferritin costs $20 if you're going to do that. It's not an expensive test. And it needs to be acted on. And when, you, when you're getting an iron infusion that late in the, the pregnancy, it's really good for the mum. It doesn't help the bub that much. Mm. But you know, any iron is better than no iron. And that's just sort of one of the factors, but that is you know, a very important one. And you know, I do a lot of iron infusions in my clinic, and I certainly get criticized by the medical powers that be that you, know, you should been doing oral supplements longer or really would you be infusing at that level? And I'm like, yep, here's you know, five research papers showing why that's a good idea. It's it's not up for debate, I don't think. Because pregnant women love taking oral iron supplements. <laughs> if your constipation <laughs> isn't bad enough or oh. your nausea isn't bad enough as it is. It's terrible. <laughs> One of the biggest questions that came through was talking about postpartum hair loss. And they wanted to know why it happens and if there is anything we can do to avoid or manage it. And is it linked to depletion? Well, the two main things that cause hair loss in the postpartum, one is low estrogen and the placenta is a hormone factory, produces a lot of hormones, 
When the baby's born, the placenta's born, estrogen pretty much goes to zero. The baby blues are related to low estrogen, and that occurs in 80 to 90% of mothers. And if estrogen doesn't pick up pretty quickly, you can get hair loss pretty early on. The other more common reason is low cortisol. And again, cortisol made by the placenta very low in the postpartum. And the low cortisol stays low if a mother is stressed out of her brain. And so this is a correlation between stress and hair loss is through cortisol. People who work in hospitals in the ICU, they know that the patients in ICU, they all lose their hair mm. because the stress is so abrupt. For a mother, it's it's a slower uh, car crash, if you like, in terms of the hair loss. And this is why it often corrects as the hormones correct. And then you start getting the mum fluff at you know, between six to 12 months postpartum. To avoid that, again, it, it's about feeling safe, really reducing the overwhelm and, and those other things that we sort of talked about, having a good postpartum plan and, and not being physically depleted as well. And again, has there been any research done on that? There's zero. So I'm just joining the dots and saying this is what I think. And, and because I only see mothers in my clinic and I see what works and what doesn't, you know, I think it's valid to talk that way. Surely, though, you know, to some extent we would lose our hair because I feel like when I'm pregnant, I get like double the hair that I'm usually granted with. And then as soon as I give <laughs> birth, on you. <laughs> and then as soon as I give birth, yeah, you, honestly, the poor, what did you call us? The porpoise? It is so true because you lose your hair, your boobs start falling down, you just feel horrendous and you're just like, what is happening? But sure. Don't act like you didn't feel horrendous when you were pregnant no, too. No, you just true. had luscious locks. I had locks. luscious hair. But surely that hair has to go at some part of the time. Well, the, the luscious hair comes from progesterone. And if you're going to get a bottle of progesterone, <laughs> but prolactin and oxytocin can do a pretty good job at filling the gap. And so, yeah, you're going to lose some of the luster and the fullness, but you're not going to be like, you know, looking in the yeah. mirror to see if you've got a bald spot type hair loss. <laughs> and so, again, do traditional cultures, do they lose hair a lot? I don't think so. They don't even have concepts around hair loss postpartum. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's something about the exaggerated stress response, uh, I think, in the postpartum. Are there any supplements or nutrients that you think that all women should take or focus on postpartum or should it be more individual? Well, I think every woman should be on fish oil or algae oil for pregnancy and the postpartum also breastfeeding. I think if you've struggled with a pregnancy or you're wanting insurance against struggle, uh, Choline is a new supplement that has got some really interesting research about how it helps the placenta, the brain, and the liver. And we're seeing a lot of the prenatals having choline in them now. But I think that's a really sort of useful one. You need to know what your iron level is. And then you need to, to have things that help reduce your stress. And that could be a supplement. That could be acupuncture. That could just be getting rid of your husband. Prioritizing, uh, getting rid of your husband's. Helping your relaxation a lot of the time it might not, but yeah, it's <laughs> but it's really about stress on, stress off. It sounds kind of ridiculous, but it's so important to engage the relaxation response. The research is growing that if you can't access relaxation, it's going to affect you, and if you can access relaxation, it's going to benefit you. The mother's brain in the first year postpartum is neuroplastic, what that means one unit of stress is going to have much more of an effect than one unit of stress outside of the first year postpartum. But on the positive side, one unit of relaxation, whatever that looks like, is going to have more benefit in that mm. first year postpartum than outside. So it's just that's neuroplasticity. It's, it's, it's much more malleable in terms of the pluses and the minuses. Finally, how can we, because I feel like our society has been so wired to just be postnatally, you suffer, that's just the way it is. How can we explain to our partners, to maybe our mothers, to our families that, you know, maybe there is something that we can do to make this period less depleting and that you may need a little bit more from those people around you. In terms of the generation above us, yeah, uh, good luck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no tips. <laughs> uh, no, but it's, 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 I find that it's a very hard 
struggle and it's just going to make the stress worse a lot of the time. And you know, there, are, there are interesting cultural overlays and mother wounds and things that, um, but in terms of our generation, and this is going to be an intergenerational, you know, things in society don't change quickly. My job or our job maybe is that when our kids want to have children, they don't even know what depletion, depression, anxiety is, or it's a really rare condition that they've never met anyone with those things. I mean, that's my goal because in traditional societies, that's what these things are really, really uncommon. Wow. But that's not going to happen overnight. And so for me, the solution in the here and the now is just getting informed about matrescence. So that's everyone getting informed about some of the maternal brain changes because I think that's very useful to kind of go, oh, I'm not, I had a dad recently trying to be humorous. I uh, didn't go down that way. Going, Looking forward oh, to you, you mean she, she's not trying to be a pain in the ass? <laughs> oh, no. he And he's kind of got a big no, kind of half chortling and just landed pretty flat. But I think he got a lot out of that session in terms of going, okay, I, I can kind of see the landscapes change. And, and so that can be sort of really useful in terms of engagement, resourcing uh, the partner and being much more together in, in the, the project. And then I think older mothers talking to younger mothers with deep support and non-judgmental mm. advice, which is called story, not advice. So the stories are really useful. Advice isn't very useful. And so if you know the difference between the two, story is you're sharing your story or a story that you know from someone else about your struggles, someone else's struggle. You're not telling someone advice going, you're going to struggle and you should and you shouldn't. You know, and so advice, we live in a world of advice. We don't live in a world of story. And so I think stories are really useful for mothers, uh, advice less so. And then that deep support that's not conditional. Just like a child needs unconditional support to grow up to be a healthy human with a nice, uh, uh, flexible nervous system, you know, mothers need the same. You know, we're not. It's not that we're just going to help you under certain circumstances, and we're going to, and, that, and that's going to stop. Now, the other thing that I talk about, I think you'll find this interesting, is the difference between help and support. I talk about this all the time. I'm amazed that people don't know the difference between the two words. Um, mothers need support. So they then don't need to ask for help. Mm. Help is what you do when you're drowning out there uh, in the ocean. Support is all the lifeguards and the flags and the drone in the air that's at the beach before you even turned up. So it's kind of a nice Aussie analogy. And mothers hate asking for help as a general sort yeah, of Absolutely. It goes against the grain. It really can bring up a lot of self-doubt. And you know, one of our sayings in postpartum planning is if your postpartum plan isn't bordering on excessive, then you're going to need more. Mm. Oh, wow. And again, it's not a throwaway comment. It's much more, you're going to need a lot of support. So there is no upper limit. It's not like, oh, we've got, you know, Two hours of, of cleaning once a fortnight, that's enough. It's like, no, no, you can have two hours every day if you want or twice a day. There is no upper limit. Yeah. And to really just encourage that investment early on because we just don't invest. You know, we'll invest in the nice flash car and those kind of things because we want a nice safe car for our kids and, and what have you. But, you know, we may not feel so comfortable about going out and buying a month's worth of food through a food delivery service so we're not having to clean and cook and 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 pulling us out of the baby bubble all the time. I mean, it's, yeah, so the solution is, you know, it's big because there are so many blind spots in our culture. We can only help one mother at a time, I think, until it becomes obvious. And then it eventually will become into legislation and, and those kind of things. It's not going to happen the other way around. And yeah, we can, we can change the world one mother at a time. I think that's a, it's a nice goal. And if mothers aren't good, you know, we all know that no one's good and that, that's, it's just the law of the jungle uh, when it comes to families and to and to babies. And one last question on a lighter note: What are your thoughts on lasagna getting gifted postnatally? <laughs> uh, I, I can honestly say I've never had that question before. Um, <laughs> That's what we like to do around here. Yeah, we're keeping it fresh. So my thoughts around that: you know, as long as a mother's not. Uh, gluten sensitive yes and vegan uh, <laughs> i well, could be vegetarian yeah 
So what I, I mean, what I like about the lasagna aspect is you can have lots of stuff between the layers. Um, I'll just say less lasagna, more stuff between the layers. Yeah. And cook it properly. So just you really want all the veggies that are in there and any meat that's in there really, really well cooked because one of the postpartum themes is about having food that's easy to digest, that just falls yeah. apart. And so you can do that with lasagna. It should just... It should be very little chewing involved. So, and does it come out like that though? Because postpartum, you know, we struggle. Comes out, takes a little bit, few prunes. <laughs> I'm just wondering. We get gifted lasagna so much. Is it the right food to be having postpartum? Well, I hadn't, I hadn't quite thought of it on that level. So um, <laughs> I know I've put you off. I've put you on the spot. No, no, but it, it's yeah. So so what you're saying is it can be very stodgy. And so the thing that keeps anyone regular and mothers more so is fiber, and this is soluble fiber and insoluble fiber. And the great thing is you can cook the hell out of fiber and it's still fiber. And so we overpeel, we get rid of the fibrous sort of stuff. So if we if you're going to make the lasagna, you're going to be putting some vegetables, make sure you're putting you know, some broccoli in there that's got the fiber and just let it fall apart in there and just look so green Slow mush. cook that down. Love it, love it. Well, Dr. Oscar Serilac, thank you so much for sharing everything you have today. I'm sure our listeners will absolutely love listening to this episode and we really appreciate your time. And I do think as much as things take a really long time, I really think there's been positive progress in the past five or so years. I don't know if it's because we just work in this space as well, trying to talk about making motherhood lighter, but I do think that five years ago it was seen as so alternative to get a postpartum doula or something like that. Whereas nowadays it's becoming, you know, parenting. way more like thought about and spoken about and all those kind of things. So I think we should all be positive that some progress is being made. Yeah, and there, there is a tipping point happening. There's much more discussion thanks to work of people like yourselves who are just getting out there and beating the street as, as it were, and just, just getting the message out there that pregnancy and postpartum are important. And yes, on one hand, the rates of postnatal issues are going up, but on the other hand, the discussions and search terms and access to postpartum care is also more of a, so it's, Mm. uh, I've definitely seen such a change in the last 10 years. Uh, When I first started doing this work, no one had heard of the term matrescence. It was less like, yeah. now when I talk, more than half the people in the room usually have heard the term. So Mm. that in itself is a win. The fact that you can go out and, and, and have a choice of meal delivery services and there's more than just one dollar in the phone book, you know, th- th- that's huge. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for the work you do and for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sophie. Thanks, Jade. Enjoy today. It's been fun, important discussions, and uh, I, lo- I love what you guys do. Really important. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't, good on you. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.